Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to have you joining us uh, online, and welcome to those who are in the building. Uh, It's great to have you here and get to see you in person. Uh, One of the things you can see I'm looking forward to about lockdown ending is the fact that the hairdressers will be open again soon. Uh, So I'll be getting a haircut I've I've withheld uh, the whole time, but I'll be getting my hair chopped uh, hopefully on that first day and not look so ridiculous, but you'll have to put up with me uh, looking like this today uh, and uh, express some grace towards me. But how about we pray as we come to look at this uh, excellent part of God's Word together. Let's talk to God. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your Word. Surprise us, refresh us, challenge us. We pray that you would straighten out our thinking. But above all, we ask that you enable us to see Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, how is it that some criticisms and some accusations hurt more than others? Now, I don't want to pretend that any kind of negative feedback is particularly desirable to receive. But it's also true that there are some things that people say that get to you more than others. Why is it that some comments just really sting? Why is it that some comments really just push our buttons? Why is it that some criticisms come right to the bone and releasing us a very strong and not very godly emotion? Why is that? I will never forget what a colleague of me said on November 2010 in the church office where I was a student minister. It was a Sunday afternoon, approximately 4.15 p.m., As you can tell, I'm completely over it by now. Uh, However, he was another student minister, and he was about to start the new church the following year. And as I spoke to him, I said, look, I hope you have a really great time at the new church. And he said to me, and I quote, I am really looking forward to it because finally I'll get to hear some good expository preaching for a change. In that moment, I felt a deep anger welling up within me. The good bit was bad enough. It was the expository bit that really got to me. Instinctively, if not unhelpfully, I started to push back. And when I looked at his eyes, I saw that he had won. He'd set out to provoke me, and he had done it. Why had I gotten so angry? Why was it so hard for me to hear the implication, along with my boss, that we weren't preaching expository sermons? It's because that really mattered to us. That's the kind of church we were. That's what marked us out. And this punk had come along. He'd only been at the church for 10 months before deciding to move and told us we were no good. He attacked what we were doing and everything we believed in and everything that we were. Now, I can, I can say uh, I wasn't particularly sad to see him leave, but in the middle of the passage, some people are filled with indignation at what Jesus says that by the end of chapter 6, they are so enraged by his words and his actions, they plot to get rid of him. Why are they so angry with Jesus? Now, the issue is not the way that he preached, but it is something that is close to their hearts as good religious people in Judea. They are, in a relatively short time, these people will set out to kill Jesus. What pushes their buttons? Why are they so angry What kind of drives within them this irrational hatred towards our loving Lord? Well, Luke says it's Jesus' attitude towards sinners. In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, Luke shows us 
that Jesus does something dramatically and radically new. He engages sinful people. He transforms them and sets them free. And he, he deeply upset people. Good people, respectable people. It makes them really angry. They hate the way that Jesus defines the term sinners. And they loathe the way Jesus treats those who admit they are sinners. Why? Because it strikes right at the heart of the way in which they were living. It strikes right at the heart of who they are as people. This passage, in fact, all of chapter 5 is about Jesus loving sinful people. In last week's passage, we saw Jesus cause and saves people. He calls Simon Peter to himself. And Peter, after seeing what Jesus can do, says, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. I mean, it's a bit strange, isn't it? You'd expect Simon to be awestruck, grateful, grateful the biggest catch of his entire career, deeply impressed by this carpenter's fishing skills. But to admit the fact that he was a sinful man? Probably not. Simon tells Jesus, Go away from me, because he's all too aware of his own sin which makes him want to put distance between himself and the pure Jesus. And Luke uses the narrative to show us that Jesus calls and then uses sinful people for his purposes. It's the sinful Simon that Jesus calls to swap catching dead fish for living people, which he does. It's the sinful Simon who is the first of the new sons of Jacob, the stone in which Jesus will build the new Jerusalem, the new Israel. Jesus calls and then he sends sinful people. And in 5, 12 to 16, the first, passage, uh, the first part of our passage today, we see Jesus cleanses sinful people. I mean, if there was one disease that reminded people in Jesus' day that they lived in a fallen, broken, damaged world, it was leprosy. In Leviticus 13, it was highlighted as the most potent external sign of sinful reality which lies beneath, beneath the surface of us all. Leprosy brought ritual impurity, and ritual impurity meant both separation from the community of God and God himself. No other condition spoke so powerfully of the human condition, the basic problem of original sin. And that's why Jesus cleanses this leper. Chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And reaching out his hand, as typically God does in the Old Testament, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. No wonder in verse 15, the report of Jesus went abroad and the crowds gathered to hear him and to get their, their sicknesses healed. I mean, Jesus is literally rolling back the effects of sin in our broken world. His remarkable ministry is gathering pace. But did you notice that Jesus isn't affected by the leper's impurity? I mean, this is deeply significant. In those days... Lepers were required to announce their presence in public so that people knew to avoid them, to not come in contact with them, and in themselves become unclean. 
But here, Jesus reaches out. He touches the man. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean from this man's leprosy, this man is cleansed and instantly healed. It's an amazing reality, and it shows exactly how Jesus works in our lives. As he makes this man and us not just kind of ritually pure, he, simply, he doesn't simply remove this skin disease, but he spiritually cleanses. He removes this man's guilt. He removes our guilt, our shame. He purifies hearts. And as a result of this healing, tensions build. And so Jesus goes and prays. And you know what? Every time in Luke's gospel that Jesus prays, it is a key moment in salvation history. Something amazing is about to happen. No wonder everybody is coming to hear Jesus. Jesus calls and he sends and he cleanses sinful people. But more than that, we see in Luke 5, he forgives sinful people. By 5.17, Jesus' activities have gathered a crowd And this isn't some neutral crowd that has gathered to hear Jesus. Everybody who loves to hear what he has to say. Pharisees and the teachers of the law are sitting there, we read, who have come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem to check this man out. And it's interesting to note that even the Pharisees are present in this crowd because they want to find out about what he's got to say. These Pharisees themselves, who are teachers of the law, they're supposed to be the ones who have authorities on matter concerning God. But they ultimately come to hear Jesus. These people who would become mortal enemies and plot to kill him. Hear this man who has such authority. So the first thing you notice in this story is that Jesus, in fact, has authority. But did you notice the tough crowd doesn't inhibit Jesus in any way from doing what he needs to do? Because Luke says the Lord's power to heal was on him. But more than that, Jesus proves in this passage his authority over the most terrible and powerful things we face as human beings. He has the power to solve our ultimate problem and completely and permanently change our lives. Because Jesus has power over sin and death. Now Luke's account of this incident is briefer than the other Gospels. Because he kind of wants to get past the digging a hole in the roof and get straight to the point. So the hole has been dug, the man has been lowered, Jesus is looking up, and verse 20, he says this, Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. I mean, what a thing to say. Why did he say it? I mean, you can guess what the crowd is thinking. Forgiven? No, 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 he's paralyzed. He needs to be healed. This man is sick. I mean, imagine being there. The man lowered in front of Jesus. The silence in the room. The anticipation. Waiting to see what Jesus would do. And of course, there'll be somebody in the room who just yells out from the back, The legs, Jesus! Heal the legs! But see, imagine for a second, you took your child who had a broken leg to the emergency room. And the doctor who comes to see them says, you know what, this is really serious, and so what I need you to do is put more effort into your homework. What? Homework? What's that got to do with anything with a broken leg? Or imagine you took your wife, who is in labor, and the obstetrician comes in and and sees how she's doing, he checks her out, and then he puts a plaster cast on her leg. You'd be thinking the doctor has lost his mind. What's he thinking? He can't see the problem. 
The pressing issue here is something else. It's a bit like this with Jesus. He sees what is completely unexpected. They've brought this man to be healed, and Jesus says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, did you notice that it's actually in response to the faith of the men's friends that Jesus heals this paralytic? Jesus acknowledges the faith of these men because they have shown great trust in him. They were desperate to get to Jesus, but the crowd stood in their way. They were determined to get to Jesus, so they used their ingenuity and their persistence. They start digging a hole in the roof. Nothing will stop them. Now, sometimes I wonder, are we this passionate about approaching Jesus? Are we so determined and desperate to hear Jesus' words that we will tear open a roof? How often do we do everything in our power to spend time reading God's word for ourselves and to think about Jesus and what he has to say? If we have a problem, do we turn to Jesus? You know, our lives can be so crowded with work and friends and streaming and family and gaming and the latest update and predictions about COVID-19. Do we see the crowd and just keep walking? Or do we do everything in our power to approach Jesus and to hear his words of forgiveness? These men were desperate to get to Jesus, determined to get to Jesus. But ultimately, these men and their paralyzed friend were, uh, were completely dependent on Jesus. They couldn't solve this man's problem. All they could do was lay him at Jesus' feet. Luke, I think, reinforces for us that this paralytic was completely and utterly helpless. He's almost oblivious to what's going on in the story. He could not help himself. He couldn't get himself to Jesus to beg for help, just like us, really. Here we see Jesus is both willing and able to solve this man's ultimate problem. His true problem, the problem of a sinful heart, the problem of needing to be forgiven by God. Now in time, now in Jesus' time, people understood sickness and illness quite differently than we do today. Often, sickness was a consequence of sin and rebellion against God. But I don't think Jesus is actually saying here that this man had a greater sin than anyone else of his day. Or that he had committed some specific sin and an act that caused his paralysis in his life. Jesus does, in fact, go straight to the core of this man's problem to deal with this man's sin. But this man's problem is indeed our problem today. I mean, we live in a world that has rejected God and has decided to try and run life our own way. We are all sinners and rebels, and we all suffer the consequences of that. We are all sick. We are all inflicted. We suffer in our lives. We will all die. We are just as this man, laid before Jesus, sick, dying, sinful, and utterly powerless powerless to do anything about it. And so Jesus sees past this superficial problem this man has of his paralysis, and deals with the ultimate problem of sin. He forgives sin. However, he doesn't ignore the man's paralysis, uh, his immediate issue, his symptomatic problem. For he does go on to actually heal this guy entirely. 
this paralytic, he takes up his mat and he walks home in front of the whole crowd. Now, I think because we've heard this story so often at multiple evangelistic talks, that we sometimes lose sight of the significance of this healing. This man went from being paralyzed his whole life to immediately walking. You know, these days, medical science has come up with some amazing things. They have achieved some amazing things over the last 18 months. A vaccine since the worldwide pandemic broke out. It's an incredible thing. But just imagine, someone who was completely paralyzed is able to have their spine repaired by some amazing new neurosurgery. It repairs the damage of their spinal cord. It would be a miracle, wouldn't it? But if that person had been paralyzed for some time and is suddenly miraculously cured, imagine how much physiotherapy they would need to go through before they could walk again. The muscles would have atrophied. They would be kind of useless. Their nervous system would have to start functioning in a way that it hasn't had to do for years. But he... Jesus instantly heals this man of his paralysis. Instantly he's able to walk because Jesus has authority over sin and death. Now I say he has authority over sin and death because ultimately that is what he's demonstrating when he heals this paralytic. For his sickness is merely a symptom of death and death is the wages of sin. In this passage, Jesus is proving that the kingdom is in fact very near, as the characteristics of the kingdom of God are shown for the world to see. The destruction of power of sin and death are clearly seen here on earth. Jesus has power and authority over sin and death because God, because he is God. Look at verse 21. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easy to say. Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. The Pharisees are troubled. And they ask themselves this question within their, their hearts. Who is this man? For he is a man. They could see him. They could meet his family. He was a man like them. But they are right to think that only God has power and authority to forgive sins. That only God can say to someone like this, that everything is all right. That is to put yourself in God's place or claim to be God. It means you are guilty of blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing what they are thinking, shows them that he can in fact forgive sins. That he has the authority to forgive sins. He heals the paralytic. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Jesus has this power. Jesus has, has authority over sin and death. Jesus can heal this man and forgive this man. Jesus has the power and authority that only God has. And if we understand our Old Testament, we ought not to be surprised. Because only God could reconcile mankind to himself. He wouldn't interject some third party to fix up the relationship between man and himself. 
And only God can pay the price for all of humanity. Only if Jesus is God, is Jesus' death worthy of all of humanity. And so the man picks up his mat and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized the crowd and they glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen incredible things today. It's almost the understatement of the century. Jesus announces that he is the son of man. The one who is given all authority by the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. And that this authority extends to the forgiveness of sins. You know, Luke doesn't actually tell us how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law react. But he tells us that everyone else was blown away and they glorified God and were filled with awe. But for the Pharisees, Jesus is doing something new. You know what? He is breaking all the rules. He's defying all expectations. He is loving and forgiving sinners. And what's even worse, in this chapter, he appears to be enjoying himself as he does it. Because next week, he goes on to have a meal with Levi and other sinners. I mean, in chapter 5, verse 30, 30, uh, 33, the Pharisees, at least say John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, have the decency to look miserable when they're hanging out with, with sinners. John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink, say the Pharisees to Jesus. But Jesus says, you can't make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. A time will come, a new time has come, a new way of thinking has come, of living and loving God's people. And it involves a huge shift in thinking. Understanding what Jesus is doing here means a completely new worldview. Only fresh thinking will enable us to grasp Jesus' approach. Jesus loves sinful people. And that actually includes us. So as we finish, let's, let me ask you this very simple question. Have you come to the fact, are you holding on to the reality that you are a simple person whom Jesus loves. You know, my guess is Theophilus was an upstanding citizen of the Greco-Roman society. And he might have found this part of the gospel confronting as a good, upstanding member of that, of that time. You know what? As members of the Australian society, good, upstanding members of Australian society, even though we've heard this passage maybe a thousand times, when we really face it, when we really think about what's going on here, we should find it confronting too. But Jesus is really clear. Luke has arranged this gospel in a way that is impossible for us to miss. We are all sinful. Sinful people for whom Jesus loves. And Jesus demands that we face this reality. And Jesus calls us, and He sends us, and He cleanses us, and He welcomes people like us. So is this your starting point this week? Is this your default setting? Is this reality firmly lodged in your head that you are an inherently sinful individual who is nonetheless loved by the Lord Jesus? You know, there are equal and opposite errors in the Christian life. And we are actually prone to make both of them, sometimes even at the same time. 
we are all prone to self-pity. Poor me. I make so many sinful mistakes in my life. I'm making so little progress in my Christian life, no matter how hard I try. I must be the most sinful person at Northmead Anglican Church. It's so much harder for me than everybody else. The solution to that kind of self-pity, which is really just upside-down pride, is to remind ourselves that we are sinful people who are loved by Jesus Christ. We have been joined to Him and to take our eyes off our own lives and look to His instead. The one who loves us, the one who has taken hold of us because He has made us a new person. We have also, we have been changed by Him. The other error, of course, is to slip into pride. To listen to that inner lawyer whispering quietly in your ear, I'm better than other Christians. We hear ourselves thinking, despite all the evidence, that you know what? God made a pretty good call when he brought me into this church, when he picked me. We smile at our progress and knowledge. We bask modestly in the praise that comes our way the last time we read the Bible at church or prayed or gave a talk. We're encouraged by our own ability to help other people simply by giving them a little bit of our time on Zoom or during the week. We want to give the glory to God. But we think to ourselves, will he really mind if we borrowed just a little bit of it on the way through? We think we are good people in Christ, good people who are loved by Christ. But don't fall for that lie. We are sinful people loved by Christ. Peter, James, John, the leper, the man through the roof are all here to remind us we are sinful people, profoundly loved by our Lord and Saviour. If we lose either of these truths, we will lose both. Now, Paul Tripp, the American pastor, in his book, Dangerous Calling, writes these words. It's because... And only because your standing before the Lord is based on the righteousness of another that you can stand before a holy God and admit to your darkest secrets and your deepest failures and be unafraid, knowing that because of the work of Jesus, the one in whom you confess will not turn his back on you, but will move towards you with forgiving, rescuing, transforming, empowering and delivering love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have loved sinners like us. Help us to remember this reality today and always and be changed by this truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.